Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series that allows me to introduce our listeners to voices that I believe need to be heard. I want to flag before we begin that the following material is powerful and inspiring, but it can also be disturbing and quite hard to hear. If you're sensitive to content about physical and sexual violence, or if you believe that you might find the discussion to be triggering, you might want to go and listen to one of our other episodes instead. Today's very special guest is the campaigner Nadia Murad, someone I've got to know as a friend over the past few months. Her life story is perhaps the most astonishing I've ever heard. What happened to Nadia, as you'll hear throughout this episode, is beyond the darkest imaginations of most people. In 2014, Nadia was a young woman of 21 when at the height of the ISIS caliphate in northern Iraq, ISIS surrounded her Yazidi community in the Sinjar region. Her brothers and mother were killed in a mass slaughter. Nadia and her sisters were abducted into sexual slavery. They were traded as a reward for ISIS fighters in a market where thousands of young Yazidi women and girls were sold for as little as $20 on Facebook. After suffering unimaginable horrors, Nadia managed a remarkable and daring escape. Since that time, she's channeled her trauma to incredible effect. Today, she advocates for survivors of genocide and sexual violence and lobbies world leaders and policymakers to prosecute ISIS perpetrators. In 2016, she founded the organization Nadia's Initiative to rebuild the Yazidi homeland in Sinjar and encourage her community to return. In 2018, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her work. In the words of her legal counsel, the barrister Amal Clooney, who joins me later in the episode, Nadia has defied all the labels that life has given her. Orphan, rape victim, slave, refugee. She has instead created new ones. Survivor, Yazidi leader, women's advocate, Nobel Peace Prize winner, United Nations goodwill ambassador, author. I am so, so proud to call her my friend. Please welcome today's very special at-your-service guest, Nadia Murad. Nadia, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know it's probably very difficult for you to talk about things that have happened in your life and relive certain moments. So I just, before we start, I want to say thank you so much for your vulnerability and your courage and your honesty. You have an incredibly moving story. Uh, So thank you for trusting me with this. Um, I'd like to start really at the beginning of your story. I've read a lot about the Yazidi community and it sounds like you have this amazingly rich culture and I would love for you to just paint a picture of what Yazidi life in Iraq the place where you live the customs the religion what was that all like well thank you so much it's great to see you again and uh, thank you for listening to me thank you for giving me the chance to share my story, the story of thousands of women and girls from my community and other communities who are suffering from sexual violence, slavery, domestic violence. It's it's so important for me to be here. So Yazidism is a monotheistic religion, mm-hmm. is spread orally. You know, we fully depend on the community to mm-hmm. learn and pass on the story, the history of the community, the tradition, and even the language. So the elderly, they are the ones that teach us everything about the, the religion, the tradition, and 
it's important for us. It's uh, it's just unique. It's uh, we have our own holidays. We have our own language. It's uh, Kurmanji, a dialogue of Kurdish. It's our native language, and we have uh, many holidays. For example. The new year is on April every okay. year. Yeah, it's always on the third week of of April, and we just color eggs and buy new clothes, and uh, we also fast three days, and then the fourth day is the holiday. I like this holiday specifically because you don't have good food always in the community because it's a very poor community, mm-hmm. but. For those three days and the holiday, you buy a lot of food. And it's good that even after the holiday, there is candies and cookies. Things like leftover. Yes, yeah. It's so so good. There are so many beautiful um, customs and traditions. And I really love the way that you described it because it's the whole thing of like the history of the religion being passed down through generations. And that's how the religion lives on. You come from a large family, which I'm told is very typical in Yazidi communities. And in your book, The Last Girl, which to everybody who's listening, I couldn't recommend more highly, especially after listening to our chat today, you describe a simple but happy life where your house was busy and it was full of laughter. Can you describe to me what life was like for you growing up? I was a a child of a single mother. But before that, I mean, I was the youngest of 21. We were 11. Wow sisters and brothers, but I had nine half-sisters and brothers. So we all were born in my father's house, and I was the youngest. But when I was a few months old, my mom decided to, you know, just move to another house. Not divorce, but, you know, it was hard for her, and there were Mm -hmm. a lot of problems. So we were left alone with my mom, and she decided on her—she was— 37 years old to take care of of 11 children on her own with no incomes. She was not educated and all she had were a few sheep. That's why my siblings, none of them went to school because they had at a very young age to work to help my mom on the farm and, and with the sheep to make a living. And I was the youngest one, so I was lucky enough to go to high school, attend high school. And uh, sometimes I feel guilty that my siblings went through a lot of poverty, my mom, and I was not, I mean, I went through a lot, but not as much as they went through because I was the youngest and had education. This is just a story of so many families, you know, in the village. Life was simple, but it was not always easy. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Your your mother is a superhero, you know, being able to hold such strong family values at the same time while working so hard. You know, sometimes we forget the role of the mother of, you know, trying to raise children to be the best version that they could possibly be. And at the same time, you all helping is really, really beautiful. I would like to talk a little bit more about, you know, you have so many idyllic, you know, customs and traditions within the Yazidi community. But the Yazidis have also been really singled out over the generations for persecution. And this came to a really hideous climax on the 3rd of August, 2014. This is when ISIS had surrounded your village 
And before we talk about the events that followed, could you tell me why ISIS targeted your community and why did they consider the Yazidi culture to be such a threat to their fanatical version of Islam? Well, Yazidis have been targeted for generations simply because of our faith. And, uh, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of Yazidis in Syria and Turkey. And same thing happened to them. They own land, businesses there in Syria and Turkey, but they they had to flee and to Armenia, Georgia, Germany and other places. And now we have just few families in Syria and Turkey. And uh, same with, with the Yazidis in Iraq. You know, we were farmers and people in Iraq, in Sinjar, other places, they didn't buy our products. They saw that Yazidi are infidels, not people of the book, and that it's shame on them to let a group that are not people of the book to live among them. It was a process of, you know, decades, centuries of seeing Yazidis are not clean, that are not people of the book, and so on. So ISIS had a, a specific plan for the Yazidis when they decided to target Yazidis in August. I know that this is uh, really hard for you, but do you think you could describe for us what happened on that awful day? And I, I completely, I respect your boundaries, so please share only as much as you're comfortable with. But when, you know, ISIS surrounded your village and targeted your community, what happened on that day, on the 3rd of August, 2014? So until the 3rd August early morning, there were thousands of Kurdish and Iraqi security forces in Sinjar. Yazidis mm-hmm. knew about the ISIS threat on them, and we asked them, and they said, you are safe. They ensured the community that they will protect us. But in the early morning of August 3rd, we were left alone. And we were, Yazidi, they, they didn't warn the Yazidis that they are leaving. So and there were no soldiers, no, no protection so, whatsoever. So until the early morning of August 3rd, there were thousands of them there. But when we woke up on that that attack, no one was there. And because we were not, we were not warned that we will not be protected. We, mm-hmm. we, we didn't prepare, you know, we, we were not prepared for that and, and, Early morning, I remember it's hot in Iraq and we were sleeping on the uh, rooftop, you know, it's summer uh, that we do. And there were some calling early morning. So I just took my pillow and I went down and tried to sleep. I didn't know about, I mean, that the, the forces left. So then um, my mother came to me and she was like, go to your brother, go to your father's house and, and see People are calling. So my aunt, her children were from the north. And north, they were close to the mountain and uh, they were safer than us. So they could make it to the mountain earlier. And they were calling us, said that ISIS attacked them. More than 400,000 people flee to the top of Mount Sinjar. In our village in Kocho, there were close to 2,000 people in the village. We were surrounded by 
by ISIS. And my village is the last Yazidi village in the South Sinjar. So we were surrounded by ISIS for from August 3rd to August 15th. And we were asked to convert by ISIS leader every day, but we refused to convert. We said we will be ready to leave everything behind and go if they let us to go and join the other Yazidi, the rest of the Yazidi community. But they didn't let us to go to the mountain. On August 15, it was around 10 a.m. and they came to the village, hundreds of ISIS members and their leader who was from one of the villages that were close to us and neighbors that was the leader of that group they told everyone to just leave everything behind and walk to the school so we have only one huge school in in the village we were walking the school is about a mile from my uh, house yeah I by walking and I went to that school for 11 years learning and having friends there and and teachers in that school. So I was walking with my sister, one sister-in-law and my oldest brother and all we were carrying was some food and bread and when we went to the school everyone was there hundreds of ISIS were over the the village and weapons were there and there you know, they're just seeing them was 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 a lot. You know, you couldn't just look them into their eyes because they were they were there to do the worst thing to you and I mean to me and my family and, and my neighbors. When we made it to the school, they asked all the women and girls to go to the second floor and we were all the men were in the first floor. And they asked again to the Everyone in, in man, especially, and the leader, if they want to convert. And they said, no, we don't. We wanted to go. So please, you have everything. We will leave everything behind. I was watching everything in the school, and I could see they were taking their watches and, and wallet and everything and put them on the back on the truck. And we didn't know where they were what they, they will yeah, do to them. So nine of my brothers were there and they took them all, my, my cousin, my nephew, all of them. And we heard a shooting, you know, uh, we heard a shooting and we watched the window and they were just putting man outside in groups outside the village and shooting them in mass graves. And when they f- took all the men in the first floor. They came to us and they asked for our earrings and IDs and watches and if we had money or phones and people just gave them everything. They just wanted to leave, you know, and we were, okay, did you, you got everything. And we we were, you know, then put in, in, in cars and... We were moved from Kojo to Solak, is another a small village in Sinjar, and uh, we were transferred to that uh, a huge building there. It was almost nighttime when they brought everyone from the village, and in that building, there were thousands of them there, and they were speaking the language that 
Arabic that we know because where they were our neighbors because we have shared things with them we know them we, we their faces were familiar we just I know that if men were there because men were more close they know everyone I knew that man will will recognize them you know their names and their families but because we were women we knew they were familiar but we couldn't say like who they were so then they they just checked women and they separated us in different groups old women like my mom from age 45 to 80 and then young girls who were as they said they are ready for slavery from age 9 to 25 we were in my group and there were women who were married and had children in another group so in my group we were close to 150 girls especially from age 9 to 25 i had three of my nieces with me all three of them were younger than me and we heard that other yazidi women and girls they were taken before us from other villages in august 3rd they were already in syria and other places so they by 10 or 11 pm they put us in buses huge buses and drove us to mosul still we were not aware of what they will do to us at that moment i left everyone behind my mom my sisters my sister-in-law my nephews all i had was my id uh, which i kept with me and my nieces and we were in the bus and there was the this driver and another guy walking in the bus and just touching us touching our bodies and that moment i realized that that we have no other future this is our life now and he continued to do that to all girls that were they were really very young 9 13 11 years old and they were just separated from their mothers and and being for the first time touched by a terrorist man and he was from Iraq all the way to Mosul which was like three hours just hoping and praying that he won't touch me or touch my nieces but the biggest problem or the biggest thing that was waiting for us in Mosul the moment we got there and they were there and they just brought group of ISIS members and they will come to the rooms and choose any girls they like it based on their you know hair color age and and, and body and and that is happening until today that is happening with my friends who are still missing with my sister-in-law she is still missing it's been eight years since isis attacked these cities and so many women are still going through that violence that i went through but i was not alone and this is just my story We'll be right back after this short break. Before the break, Nadia took us through the story of her abduction, as well as the unknown whereabouts of family members and friends who are still in captivity. I also wanted to ask Nadia about the horrifying reality of being trafficked and traded as an ISIS sex slave, which is difficult to hear, but important to understand. What objective did ISIS have with this awful trade? You know... 
ISIS knew that you could just destroy the community by taking the women and girls and raping them and use all forms of violence against them. And they did that, you know, not to one or two or or 10 girls, to 6,000, more than 6,000 women and girls in the community. And throughout the history, women have always been used as a weapon of war. And that was what ISIS did. And I mean, think about it, how many women and girls before us, they remain voiceless and silent because of what they went through and, and their stories were not were not heard. Uh, people were not listening to them. There, there's a lot of shame, stigma, taboo in, in telling a story like this, even in in our country, in our community. When I decided to speak up about what ISIS did to me and all the details, I did it because I know they did it to me already, but I was hoping that the world will listen and act and not let that happen to another woman and girl in other countries. And there are videos of ISIS when they are saying, do you want it to buy my Yazidi girl with, you know, for $10, $20? And that was happening. I And these videos where they were on Facebook. Facebook, They yeah. were being sold YouTube. Yep. Yes, and YouTube were, online. Yeah, so they, they recorded. They were proud. And until today, they are proud of what they did to Yazidis. And if they had a chance, they will do it again to eradicate the community from Sinjar, from Iraq. And yeah, the, everything was, was recorded. There are thousands of stories of women and girls from the Yazidi community who named the ISIS member who were with them and their background. And there are thousands of them in presence in Iraq. But we don't know what what will happen to them. Iraq is not doing anything to hold them accountable for the, yeah, for, for the crimes of genocide and sexual violence. And I can say that I know why many survivors are not ready to share their stories because... They're afraid that nothing will happen because when they share their stories, they are promised with a lot of, you know, that they will help them, they will be safe, and that what happened to them won't happen to any other women. But, you know, we always say never again, but it happens. It's happened. very hard to yeah. say that, especially when, when things like this are happening all the time and women are at the hands of, like you said, they're used as... Um, a weapon of war. war. Yeah. You know, it's 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 really incredibly difficult to kind of fathom what that must have been like for you. And I know that after three months and several failed attempts with horrific consequences, you were finally able to escape and eventually be reunited with uh, some of the surviving members of your family. And in the following months, you also received confirmation of what you dreaded most of all which was that your mother was uh, killed by ISIS and I know that you and your mother were very close and that you write about her as a very determined spirit but also who laughed easily and who was very warm and a loving person talk to me about her and and your memories of her I was lucky enough to just run from the captivity and I was lucky enough to find someone to help me to make it to the safety. 
but not everyone was lucky enough to make it to the safety. And until today, there are thousands of them that are still waiting to reunite with their family members. I was very close to my mother and I received a lot of, you know, love, attention from her. And I I never knew that, you know, it would just be a memory, you know, uh, to remember what she taught me. The, the, and I always say that she will be for forever my hero and that, you know, the things that I learned from her, the value, the culture, the respect, love and everything. And one of the last things she told me, her last words were before they took me with other girls to Mosul, uh, she said, I can't open my eyes anymore and I just see death. And I, my mom was always optimist. She was... Uh, she was my hero. She was, you know, through those days we were surrounded. She will always try to make us feel comfortable that we will make it to the security. And then she told me and my sister, if I didn't make it to the mountain, I want you to just remember me as your mother. And, and that was all. But I, I don't think any mother deserves to see six of her boys being killed in one hour. Uh, six brothers being killed in one hour together is, is a tragic for, for any family. And she saw the first mass grave when they were shooting men. And with that shooting, the first shooting, she just gave up on everything. And I was always hoping that she was not killed. And, you know, I was just thinking like how someone can just kill a woman that she never hurt anybody. She was wearing her easily traditional white clothes and I white, you know, covering her head with a white traditional thing and with other women. I was like, she always shared our food, our clothes with our neighbors and I learned everything from her. And I'm trying to, you know, tell the, her stories every time I see my nieces, especially and nephews. I, I tell her stories and I told her story in my book with details. And because of what I learned from her when I wrote the book, everything that came from my book went to this work yeah. and for the survivors in Sinjar. And I hope that those who are listening, that they can, you know, understand that I'm not just, you know, doing the work of speaking, but I'm also donating everything that came from my book, uh, from all other awards, including Nobel Peace Prize, to the community, to rebuild the region, to advocate on behalf of women and girls, to make sure that what happened to my mother won't happen to any other. So... I'm proud of everything I, I have done so far and I will continue to advocate to make sure that I will be the last girl. Thank you so much for this. There are over 200,000 Yazidis still displaced in northern Iraq and the 150,000 Yazidis who have returned to Sinjar are struggling to rebuild their homes in an area which has been totally devastated and it's still being hit by airstrikes. In 2016, you founded Nadia's Initiative, which aims to rebuild Yazidi homeland in Sinjar and encourage your community to return. What have you been able to rebuild and is it possible 
to piece together this fragmented community? Nadia's initiative and me alone, I mean, I'm not able to to rebuild a region that was destroyed completely by ISIS. ISIS destroyed the basic services in Sinjar, schools, farms, clinics, and houses. Yazidis' houses were destroyed in hours in the very first weeks of ISIS attack. And when I founded Nadia's initiative, I was hoping that with that I will advocate more on behalf of survivors of sexual violence, on behalf of my community and other communities, and work on the legal side with Mal and, and UN, the international community. But, you know, I realized that the international community, our own government and those NGOs in Iraq, they were avoiding to support people in Sinjar to rebuild the region. And they were like, it's not secure and it's destroyed. And they didn't know to start with, with what, because everything was destroyed. And they just avoided and they they focused mostly on these camps. And camps are not a sustainable solutions for communities after a conflict. And I lived over a year in one of the camps in north. And it was just the second worst experience in my life. You just wait for the day to pass and wait for someone to give you food. And most of the times women and girls were were used where there was uh, exploitation on women and girls, you know. They were telling their stories on with hope that they will get some support, food, clothes, and, and you know, child marriage and suicides and in those camps is happening every day. And there are some programs, you know, considered as empowering women, but you can't empower women if they have no safe place and no food. They don't feel secure and those are not sustainable solutions. So from my experience in the camp, I I try to rebuild the pieces that I can mm-hmm. through Nadia's initiative with our partners in all over the world. But it is just a lot. You know, yeah, it's it's for, for a survivor, for a new initiative, you know, very young initiative is just a lot to rebuild a region and the community. And it's it's not just about rebuilding everything. It's about the, assuring the, the community that this time they are safe and then we can do more work uh, to help them to, you know, heal. I wanted to understand more about the legal process for bringing the perpetrators of genocide against Yazidis to trial, and why, despite the evidence, we haven't seen more prosecutions. I spoke to human rights barrister Amal Clooney, who's been lobbying for a coordinated international response to the genocide. Amal, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You've been Nadia's legal counsel in her fight for justice for Yazidis since 2016. You've also got other Yazidi clients, both individuals and organizations. And in fact, you've actually recently just had a massive breakthrough where you secured your first ever conviction of genocide against an ISIS fighter in the German courts. Before we get to all that, I just wanted to talk to you about the legal situation of women like Nadia, who have been held captive, raped, had family members killed or abducted. You know, they know who their oppressors are. 
They know their names. They can identify them in court. There are mass graves. There's a whole trail of evidence. And yet there's almost no prosecution. And I I know it's complicated, but can you explain in relatively simple terms why that is the case? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. And it's shocking, but unfortunately, this is what we are seeing in so many situations around the world where there is mass violence and the perpetrators are getting away with it, are not being brought to justice. And You know, if you take a step back, I know you've just heard Nadia's story, but the scale and seriousness of these crimes can't really be exaggerated. You know, what happened to her family happened to thousands of Yazidi families where the father and mother were murdered and the little boys were taken to be so-called cubs of the caliphate and taken to fight on the front lines. And the young girls were taken into a system of sexual slavery like nothing we've seen certainly in my lifetime traded as you heard online you know bought and sold for the price of a packet of cigarettes sometimes so the fact that this can actually happen um in the modern day is shocking i know of course we're all also shocked by the scenes from ukraine at the moment but as you say not very many prosecutions why is that uh, you know the crimes couldn't be more serious and the evidence was there i've I've called ISIS a bureaucracy of evil because they left behind really so much evidence, including sort of paperwork disclosing their intent to wipe out Yazidis. So, you know, when Nadia contacted me, it was because of this problem that, you know, how can we put these people on trial? And so what we did was go to the United Nations Security Council. This is the most powerful body that we have in the international system. And we said... You know, this is a globally reviled terror group. It was at one stage administering a territory the size of the UK. It committed crimes in so many countries around the world. And the Security Council has a responsibility to deal with this. At the very least, we can't let the evidence disappear. And, you know, it was one of the few moments in recent years where the Security Council has shown unity on a, an issue of accountability. And it did set up this UN investigation. Nadia and I were in the chamber when the 15 hands went up and we saw this happen. And they sent a team led by a, a British barrister who's now the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, Kareem Khan, to Iraq. And with a team of forensic investigators and others, they have now gathered thousands of witness statements. They've exhumed mass graves. Nadia actually was able to identify and bury two of her brothers. So that now there is evidence that has been collected and can be used so that justice is at least possible. But there is still a long way to go, unfortunately. You did have a breakthrough prosecution recently in Germany against a husband and a wife who murdered a five-year-old Yazidi child that they had enslaved along with her mother. I have two questions connected to this. Firstly... This was a milestone because it was the first case in the world where ISIS was successfully charged with genocide. Could you explain why it is so significant that this charge was genocide rather than terrorism? Mm -hmm. And secondly, is it possible that the guilty verdict marks a breakthrough in the Yazidis' legal fight? Well, I hope so. You know, genocide has been called the crime of crimes. Some people consider it to be the most serious crime, even more serious than crimes against humanity. And the reason for that is that it requires an intent 
to basically destroy a group in whole or in parts of the Yazidis defined as a religious group, for instance. And ISIS, as we were saying, you know, didn't even hide its intent to destroy the group and, and, and wipe it off the face of the earth. In Iraq, there are trials of ISIS fighters, but there is no crime of genocide on the books. So they can't actually put people on trial for genocide. They can put them on trial for terrorism. But these trials are problematic because of the way they're being carried out and they basically don't represent justice um, from the victim's perspective. So those trials aren't really sufficient. And that's why Nadia and others have been for years saying, you know, we need these trials to be taking place before an international court. We have an international criminal court in The Hague with jurisdiction over the crime of uh, genocide. But Iraq has not recognized the jurisdiction of the ICC and the Security Council has not given the ICC power to hold trials in this particular situation. So, you know, one thing we tried to do to sort of fill the gap is basically go to countries where they have what's called universal jurisdiction laws, laws that allow that country's courts to put people on trial, even if the crimes took place abroad, even if the defendant is not from that country and the victim is not from that country. And Germany is one of the states that has universal jurisdiction for the crime of genocide. The principle being these crimes are so abhorrent, you know, a country should be able to prosecute them no matter where they occurred in the world. And, and so we have been successful in Germany in basically bringing to German prosecutors evidence and connecting them with witnesses so that trials could take place. And as you say, we last November reached a milestone where for the very first time anywhere in the world, an ISIS fighter was not only put on trial, but convicted of genocide. And it's really an incredible story because the case sort of rested on the testimony of one Yazidi woman who basically took it upon herself to try to bring about this milestone. You know, in the absence of any kind of functioning system, it's really individuals who've been so heroic in this process. And she's definitely one of them. You know, she left everything she knew and put herself into a witness protection program in a foreign country and said, I'm going to give evidence against this ISIS fighter who had held her captive along with her daughter and ultimately had killed her daughter by leaving the girl hanging from a window outside um, and, and letting her die uh, there in the heat in, in Fallujah. And this man was was arrested, was extradited to Germany and stood trial uh, before a panel of five German judges. She gave evidence over seven days, looking him in the eye and telling the world what he'd done. And really with the weight of the world on her shoulders, because this was the first trial of genocide and all Yazidis were watching it. But ultimately, she won and he was convicted. And it was an amazing moment. It sent chills down my spine when I heard that genocide was the pronouncement in court and he was ultimately given a life sentence. So, you know, will that be a precedent for more trials? I hope so. But, you know, individual cases like that are not really the solution when you're dealing with what we have at the moment, which is thousands of, you know, former ISIS fighters who are held in in camps and makeshift prisons in, in Iraq and Syria with no real plan to deal with them. It's an incredible, I mean, story, a really sad story, but a massive, massive breakthrough in the in the outcome of it. And, you know, you and I, we've spoken before and I was really, really moved when you talked about the power of Yazidi women's witness testimony. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the women who sort of took my breath away. You know, she had no formal education. She had no support system left. And she just made justice a priority and did not flinch. It was actually really dramatic because at the moment that the judges said genocide and that the defendant had been sentenced to life, he actually fainted in the courtroom and she was resolute and strong as ever. And it just was this reversal of sort of the the power um, imbalance that existed when she was literally his slave. And those moments give me hope. And those, I mean, people like her are so courageous. And of course, Nadia herself. And Nadia's story is full of, you know, obviously the darkest side of humanity, but also sort of individual heroes. And Nadia herself, you know, I've spoken to people who were working in a local government in Germany who had a a really modest budget and just looked at this sort of awful situation in Iraq and thought, we can't help everyone, but we have a budget to help 1,000 girls. And they went to Iraq and and interviewed, you know, victims of sexual violence and and chose Nadia as one of the thousand. And and they've told me that at the airport, Nadia just started to address the other Yazidis and sort of just try to inspire them and, and give them hope. And in the years that followed, I've been with her to women's shelters and refugee camps and and you get sort of women of all ages, grandmothers and and women much older than her sort of throwing themselves at her and saying, you're our voice, you're our mother, and just the strength that she has and and the sort of responsibility that she felt to, you know, as she says in her book, try to make sure that she's the last girl who goes through what she's been through. I think that's amazing. She also, when she finally got away from her ISIS captives, she just knocked on the door of a yeah. of a house and and there was a man who you know at great risk to himself and his family helped her to get a fake ID document and sneak her across the border and and so you know even in these awful situations you do get these sort of acts of of heroism um mm. and these women in particular who do transcend the labels that sort of were assigned to them you know Nadia could have thought of herself as a a rape victim, a refugee, a, um, a victim of genocide. And and I've known her for many years now, and she's just gone sort of from strength to strength. You know, now she's a Nobel laureate and doing so much incredible work to help other women all over the world. And as the girl who ISIS tried to silence um, and and failed, and it's it's been a beautiful thing to watch. My thanks to Amal for sharing those insights with me. After the break, I'm going to rejoin Nadia to find out about her life today, how running keeps her sane, and some rather surprising music choices. Now, at some point, your public speaking, you switched from speaking in Arabic to speaking in English. Um, You're also studying for your degree in English. Was that a difficult transition for you. I mean, it's one thing having a chat across the table with me, but standing up at the UN with world leaders, you know, it's another league. Was it important for you to be able to communicate directly uh, without the aid of an interpreter? And uh, what were your methods for becoming fluent in a new language? 
Well, English is not my first, second, or even third language. I speak uh, Kurmanji. It's my native language. I was taught Arabic for 11 years at school. I was the first one of my family to attend high school, and my family was just proud of seeing one of the family that is going to the school. Like so many girls, my education was taken from me by ISIS. And then when I moved to Germany, I tried to learn German, but I never had a chance to attend school because of of the work that I'm doing. I mean, I live between U.S. and Germany. So when COVID started, I had a little time, you know, to not travel. And I took few language courses at the American University. And then I uh, decided to just get a, a degree. And I know I'm still working on my language, practicing every day. It's not easy, especially being an adult and learning a new language. It's, it's not like a child trying to learn a language, but I study in English. I read in English. I listen to music, uh, your music, my favorite. And wait, my favorite song, you know what? <laughs> Which one? Guess what? Which, Which one? Bang, bang. It was the first one that... <laughs> oh, the cover. Yes. Oh, wow. Of Nancy Sinatra. Amazing. Yes. It's, uh, oh, thank you. But... I also listen to one of like my secret favorite <laughs> singer, uh, Cardi B. <laughs> I just yeah, I'm sure she's very honored yeah, to hear I, that. I, I I love her. You know her her personality, confidence, and she was just one of the very first singer that I listened to her music, mm. and I was so energetic. And you know, after listening to her she music, has that effect. yeah, so she's just. <laughs> She's amazing, and I hope that one day we can have a talk with her too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah. she's very, um, alongside with her fun personality, she also uses that as a strength in her activism as well, so I'm sure she would love yeah. to talk to you. And now, originally, we had planned that as well as recording this podcast today, that we would also go on a run together. I know, um, shit. <laughs> but if I'm really honest, I was a little bit intimidated when you told me how far you run and how fast you run. Like for me, exercise is a really good way for me to like balance my mind as well as my body. And I imagine, I guess it's the same for you. When did you take up running and what do you get from it? Like, does it give you um, mental strength as well as physical strength to carry on with your work? So... Back home before 2014, for 11 years, I will every morning walk to school and come back from school, which was a mile, you know. But I never walked outside, you know, the village or hiked or anything. It was it was not safe for women, to be honest, to just take a walk uh, like boys were doing from my school. When I moved to Germany, you know, before I moved, I mean, when I was in ISIS captivity. And when we were surrounded by ISIS, one of the things that I wanted to do more than anything else was to just run and run from the conflict, the violence, the the hate and their faces. And I did it. I succeeded to just rescue myself. And when I moved to Germany, I just took long walks. You know, I, I needed more than anything. I, I just, I, I, I felt that I need to be 
think about my family, my my life before, and I was taking long walks every day. Uh, and it was so safe to do it in Germany, and I was like, finally, I'm fully free. You know, mm. walking in a full freedom, and no one is hurting me. No, I'm not running from fear anymore. I'm just running for fun, for reflections on, you know, my past and my what I need to do now to help others and. Then in during COVID, I wanted to just run, give it yeah. a try, and I did it, and I couldn't stop. I was just, <laughs> I was just going. You're going. very good and very fast. Yeah, it's I, amazing. I just like you know run, and it helps me to just clear my mind and focus, think about our our projects, our work. What else can I do? How? Can I be, you know, more involved in helping women and girls all over? It's so important for me to take it. But sometimes my husband is jealous because he <laughs> walks. So he is jealous. But, you know, because of school and the work and traveling, it's it's not something that now I do it every day. So I try to do it like a few times a week. And uh, I walk a lot to school meetings. So one of my favorite things about the meetings, you know, leaders and others, I just walk, especially in Europe. It's so nice to walk to your meeting. Yeah. So first, my first meeting with President Macron and they called the team and they said, what is the number of the car, you know, which car are you coming and the number? And they said, well, she's walking. She's already <laughs> She's already on her way. Yeah. I think for reference for our listeners, we just need to tell them a little bit about, like, how far do you run and how, how quick does it take you to run them? <clears throat> so I, <laughs> I just, when is it in the morning? I go, I mean, close to 15 miles. And uh, I have done walking, I mean, especially walking, I do sometimes 21 miles. It's and amazing. Yeah, it's, um, I love it. It's nice to do it. You know, you just leave everything behind and try to focus to towards your future, your goals, and focus more on what you want to do and how you can help others. So I run fast. Yeah, you do. Especially Definitely. listening to your music and Cardi. So that's just <laughs> all I I'm, need, you know? I'm happy to, to play a little role in, in your in your speediness. But since we both are busy this time, so let's we gotta, plan we gotta, something. Yeah, yeah. we got to plan the, the run yeah. for next time. But what we're going to do now is we're going to go for some lunch, yeah. um, which I'm really looking forward to. But something that you have so kindly decided to share with us for Service 95 and for our listeners and for the newsletter, which is what we're going to publish, is uh, is you're going to share a very special recipe with our listeners. And I wondered if you could share what that is. So, yes, uh, there are a lot of delicious food in Middle East and Yazidi dishes in Iraqi and Arab, but there is this special dish about Iraq in general. The whole country is dolma. I remember the first time we met, you said you like the waranap, which it, yes, yes I rice. love yeah. the rice in the in the vine leaves. Yes, so we in Iraq we do it differently, and it it calls dolma. So it's so special. It's always made by women, and there are a lot of vegetables and uh, rice, spices and uh, tomato sauce, mm. uh, hot water and uh, 
It's so good, but you need to make sure that you have at least three hours to prepare. Okay. Yeah. Okay. To prepare for for a meal like that, it's uh, uh, yes. I have the recipe, and um, you know when you go to Iraq, people will ask you, "Have you tried Iraqi dolma?" So you have to try it. Okay. Yeah. I'm very excited to share that with everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And finally, I'm sure after listening to this, our listeners would love to know some ways that they can support the Yazidi community? Well, please first just go to our website and go to our social media platforms and see what we are doing. And uh, if you have time, read the book, educate yourself. Uh, If you can help donate to Nadia's initiative, we assure that everything that we are getting support, it goes to build the region piece by piece, helping survivors of sexual violence and just add your voice to ours. We need you to tell others and about the Yazidi community, about what happened to them. You know, now, right now in Ukraine, people need solidarity more than anything else. They need people to just stand with them, use their platforms. You don't have to be a politician to to post something, I mean, you can just do it on a post on your social media, uh, use your platforms as you are doing and and others are doing to just raise awareness, you know, on issues that are that that many people are facing today and they are so important and so common. They are not issues of sexual violence, domestic violence. It's not just happening in Iraq, you know. Violence on a college campus or on a conflict zone, it's violence. And women and girls bear the burden of victim blaming. This is something, it's clear that women are and girls are always blamed for what they go through. So don't let that happen to any any women and girls and just add your voice to ours. And I, I, I appreciate that. Nadia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for your words and your honesty and your time more than anything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you again to both Nadia and Amal for their time, their grace and their willingness to amplify such a powerful story in today's episode. I hope Nadia's story moves you the way it does me. And if you'd like to learn more about Nadia and her mission or simply to donate to Nadia's initiative, please visit her website, nadiasinitiative.org and subscribe to our newsletter at service95.com to make sure you get this week's issue, which features Nadia as well as the stories of several other female activists and trailblazers. It's an incredible issue and one that pairs so seamlessly with the episode you're hearing right now. So be sure to subscribe by Sunday to get this week's Service 95 in your inbox. I also cannot wait to make the recipe of Iraqi dolma Nadia so generously shared in this week's episode. And I'd love to hear from you all about dishes that evoke a sense of place or tradition or even a memory for you. Email us a voice note to podcast at service95.com with your name and we might read a few of them aloud on an upcoming episode. On last week's episode, I asked for your fast food guilty pleasures after I revealed my meatball sub fetish. Here are just a few of yours. Hi, Duo. My name is Nick. I'm from Seattle. Um, Meatball sub. What? Hello. Uh, I didn't even know anybody else ordered that. Around the University of Washington, the best place to get some late night food has got to be Aladdin's. That's a shawarma place. 
So you got your gyro, your kebab, your falafel. It's open until like 3.30 in the morning on weekends. So if you're stuck at university doing homework late at night or if you're trashed after a party, that's definitely the place to be. Hey, Dua, this is Ashley from the U.S. If you're looking for a good dessert, my recommendation for a late night bite in L.A. would have to be a chain in Southern California called Afters for their ice cream that they put inside of a milky bun, a.k.a. basically a warm glazed donut with ice cream flavors like mocha, jasmine milk tea, strawberry cookie crunch, and so many more. If you're looking for more of a meal, an In-N-Out burger with Del Taco's fries is always a fast food guilty pleasure for me. You've definitely got to try one or the other after a night out, and I can't wait to hear what you think of it. Hi, Dua. My name is Angelica, and I'm calling from San Diego, California. Here in San Diego, I personally believe that we have the best taco shops in the States. Taco shops are open pretty late. So in college... I frequented this taco shop called Trujillo's, which was down the street from the university. When we'd go to these taco shops, a staple would be either a burrito or a plate of fries. And normally I would get either carne asada fries, which carne asada is pretty much marinated sliced beef on top of French fries with some guacamole, maybe some sour cream, pico de gallo. Or I'd get a California burrito, which is basically carne asada fries stuffed in a burrito. Sounds like a lot, but honestly, after a night of drinking, it's pretty satisfying. <laughs> Yum. My stomach is now rumbling. Believe it or not, next week is the penultimate episode of At Your Service's first season. I've been having the time of my life doing these interviews, so I can't believe we're nearly finished with our debut series. Make sure to tune in next week for another very special guest, the Oscar-winning actor, Riz Ahmed. And until then, stay well and talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. 